Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. Caleb coming to you with a really cool offer from my dear friend Chris Gilmore from Chris Outdoors. When you first get started exploring the outdoors, whether it be through hunting, camping, or survival skills, it can all get a little bit mm, daunting and maybe even overwhelming in regards to how much there is to learn. Having a solid foundation in tracking and naturalist skills can help open the door to bushcraft and make you learn much faster. It can also just make things outdoors that much for, uh, that much more fun and exciting. What bird made that call? What animal does that track belong to? What do those clouds mean in regards to the incoming weather? Nature awareness is a skill set that is transferable to all aspects of bushcraft and beyond. Whether you are a hunter, a trapper, an angler, a survivalist, a paddler, or a hiker, this skill set can help make you safer and make your experiences that much more enjoyable. Chris has taught literally thousands of people how to read sign, whether it be through tracks, bird language, or the environment itself. And with his new online learning course, Reading Nature's Language, he can help you take your skills to the next level. Even though it is based online, you will have access to tons of practical activities and challenges that will make you the woodland Jedi you always wanted to be. Check out the trailer and more details at www.learnnatureslanguage.com. And just to sweeten the deal for you, enter the promo code DRAGONFLY to get 25% off the course. Again, that is www.learnnatureslanguage.com with the promo code DRAGONFLY for 25% off. Do you know which way is north or south? Do you know how to catch rainbow trout? Do you know your track morphology? The importance of the hardwood trees, the land. Disconnected we may seem But the hemlock tree and raven Both drink from the same stream Hello Dragonfly Nation, this is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host Caleb Musgrave and on this episode I want to focus on work smart, not hard. And this is a term I'm sure many of us have heard over the years and we've probably tried to follow it and emulate it whenever possible but I see a lot of not necessarily mistakes or bad ideas per se, but I've seen people put a little bit more effort into things than they really have to. And this could be as simple as they didn't sharpen their tools enough and therefore they're having to put more effort into the cuts, or it could be going as far as carrying way too much gear or putting too many tasks in one basket or too many eggs in one basket and not having enough focus on diversifying what they're doing out there as well as being smart with the right kind of gear versus the right kind of techniques. I think the most famous adage or proverb of this in the bushcraft community comes from the great, the late great Morse Kohansky, the more you know, the less you carry. And uh, an old partner of mine, an old friend of mine, Lucas Wagner, used to say, uh, put a little addendum to that or a little addition to that. The, the more you know, the less you carry, the more time it takes to get it done. And that is true to within a, within a degree, to, to a degree that that is true. And I, I agree with him on that on many aspects, but we can be smart with how we do things in the woods. And so this episode is about figuring out how to problem solve and be a little bit more creative and learning how to resolve issues without having to put too much exertion. 
when we put in more effort into things that are than are necessary, we can exhaust ourselves calorically or just mentally. We can dehydrate ourselves. We're going to be using up more water, putting more sweat into it, but also we can risk injury. And so we always have to think about how can I do this in a smart way? And a lot of this episode is inspired by our last episode when we actually talked about the fact that sometimes camping can suck and there's a lot of troubleshooting and a lot of issues that can happen that make things more challenging than they really should be. And the more we practice our campcraft, the more we practice bushcraft and learning and trying to figure out as many solutions for one problem as we can, we can come up with some really creative, simple ways to resolve issues and have a much more pleasant experience on the trail, in the camp, or frankly, in the woods at any time. So let's dive into that. A lot of people think of bushcraft and living in the wilderness as like these solid jacked people that look like they belong in pro wrestling and they're swinging these big axes and they're carrying heavy logs and they're doing everything and they're, they're macho. And that's really not the case. <laughs> um, I have worked in survival skills and bushcraft for well over 12 years. I've been running my own school Canadian bushcraft for 12 years, going on 13 years now. Um, and really in that time, like I was solid. I was, I was looking at photos of me from like 10 years ago the other day. And I was like, man, I thought I was fat back then now with back injuries and uh, just having to be a little bit more sedentary with COVID-19 and everything. I've put on a lot of weight and I'm still capable of doing a lot of the skills that I've always been capable of doing. And there's even like these certain people in the bushcraft community that are like doing push-up challenges and stuff. And yes, I'm not here to say that being physically fit is not important. You need to be physically healthy. You need to be, to be able to get things done in the woods and to be able to exert yourself once in a while. But as a man that looks more like a woolly mammoth than a human being, <laughs> I do things in the woods smart and I do things in a sense lazy, but I'm not being lazy with how I do it. I am being clever and intelligent and thinking things through in ways that I find invaluable. And so that's really what I want to get into with this episode is work smart, not hard. That's the whole concept of this episode and why it's important to say it that way. Work smart, not hard. You can be smart or you can be tough. You can rarely be both if ever. So make it very, I want to make that very clear that this episode is helping you through my own diatribe and ranting trying to figure out how to become smarter with how you do things so that you can save yourself time, save yourself energy, but also prevent injuries or prevent problems further down the trail. So let's dive into it. So let's start off with gear because that's what a lot of people like to talk about in the bushcraft community. Somehow something that is focused on hand skills and using your mind and using your hands somehow translates into kit and gear and gear and gear and equipment and gear and gear. I don't know. Well, actually, that could be probably an exaggeration. I, I would like to say that I don't know any other hobby that requires such a heavy gear focus, but that's not true. There's mechanic work, uh, like any anything with auto uh, automobiles or cars. There's a lot of gear in there. Hunting, there's a lot of gear in there. There's a lot of gear heavy in almost any subject. So I think that'd be kind of arrogant of me to say that this is the most gear heavy subject. But I find it ironic because it doesn't have to be gear heavy. And that can lead to a few different things. The first thing that comes to mind is weight on your back. The more you carry, the more exhausted you're going to be. I remember on some of my first trips, I was carrying like 80 pound rocks. 
90 pound rucks on a, a couple of occasions and it was exhaustive. It was absolutely exhaustive. And I couldn't, and I talked about this last week. I couldn't enjoy the surround my surroundings. I couldn't enjoy what I was doing. I couldn't see the wildlife that was around me and the landscapes and enjoy them as much. You get to these beautiful vistas on top of ridges and small foothills and mountains. And I would be so tired and focused on trying not to fall over the big heavy ruck on my back that eventually I realized I'm not actually getting to appreciate and enjoy these views let alone see that deer off in the distance or see that moose in the bog or whatever it may have been that other people may have seen that I didn't. And so the first thing that I always recommend is learning how to carry less, learn ultralight backpacking techniques and, and concepts. You can get really extreme with that. Like I said, cutting off your handle on your toothbrush, or you can simply realize like you can take dehydrated meals that you made yourself, or of course bought uh, freeze dried meals from camping stores and hunting stores all the way to like using aluminum or titanium equipment instead of steel or uh, cast iron by any means. And those are great options as well, but let's get even further into this. The right tool for the right job, I think is something that's really, really important to think about. I watch a lot of people cut through six inch, seven inch, eight inch diameter logs for firewood using a Baco Laplander or even a silky gomboy folding saw. These are great tools. That's not the right job for them though. These are pruning style saws. So you're talking three to four inch diameter sticks and small logs being its most optimum position to be in. If you are planning on cutting a lot of larger wood, let's say nine, 10 inch diameter for long log fires for the winter time, you shouldn't be taking a folding saw. You should be taking a packable buck saw of some sort, whether that's the Agua Canyon boreal, boreal saws. There's like a 21 inch or 24 inch. I think they're working on a 30 inch one. There's the Bob Dustrude folding saws. There's also a uh, collapsible buck saws. If you do like Japanese style pull cut style saws, there's silky Katana boys and the Bakemar white horse knockoffs of those. I think it's called the GS 600 or something like that. I, I can't remember what it's actually called but those style larger folding saws that allow you to cut upwards of hug sized logs or trash can diameter logs that would be much, much better, much better for that situation. And we can dive into that with our axes. Should I carry that hatchet just because it's light and then try to do large tasks with a hatchet? Or can I carry an oversized ax and exhaust myself carrying that, but at least I can cut wood of large diameter. Is there a value to that? And of course, if you go back to our ax me a question episode, we concluded that there is a great middle road option there, which is a small to medium sized bush ax, which is about a 28 inch handle down to 24 inch handle, uh, even down to 22 inch handle. And with about a two to two and three quarter pound head, and it will do most large chores that need two hands and that can still be used as a hatchet and it's still lighter than the bigger axes. It's going to require some better techniques for safety than a felling axe, but it's going to be a lot safer than a hatchet. And you're going to exert less energy using a larger axe. So you can think of it in that direction, but let's go beyond that. Do I need these tools? If I'm going to be burning dead wood and I'm in a wooded area that's got a lot of dead wood, can I get away with breaking it or burning it instead of having to cut it? So breaking can be done in a few ways. In some ways are smart and some ways are hard. 
The hard way is leaning it against a rock or leaning on top of another log and jumping on it, potentially breaking it, but potentially slipping and falling or tripping and falling or breaking through so quickly you're not ready to catch yourself and you fall and injure yourself. Or can I put it into the crotch of two trees or the crotch of one large tree and push it through? Don't pull it. You don't want to walk backwards at any time when you're trying to do this. You want to walk forward, push it with leverage to your advantage and break the stick and or break the log in half. And this is going to work with, I would say at max. And if you're really strong and it's good, dead, good, dead wood and a solid crotch in a tree, maybe five inch diameter to six inch diameter is the optimal thickness for that smaller is going to be safer and better and easier. So when we get to those bigger pieces of wood, do I actually have to cut it? If I'm using a wood stove, yes, I'm going to have to cut this wood down or break this wood down into dimensions that can fit inside the, the firebox of my wood stove. But if I'm using open fire, there is nothing telling me that I don't have to, that I have to cut it. I can simply let the fire do the dimensioning for me or do the truncating or cutting for me. Either using a long log fire or a star fire lay and allow the middle sections of the wood to burn in half. And then I now have two pieces of wood that I can then stack on top of each other and continue the burn. That's a much smarter way to do this stuff. Yes, I can break wood all day long, either with the crotch of a tree or stomping on it or bending it over, breaking over my knee. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I was training in Survival in the Bush Incorporated, one of my first outdoor schools that I started training with. And they actually pointed out there's actually some safety issues with breaking stuff over your knee. Breaking a, a branch or breaking a solid piece of wood over your knee can actually potentially risk dislocating your kneecap or damaging a tendon. And these are not things we want to do when we're in the woods. And that means because if you injure that, it's going to be even harder to walk out to take care of that injury. So always try to protect your joints, always try to protect your legs and your feet. Those are the tool, the, the, the parts of your body that you need to get you evacuated for any other injury you might sustain. Always do your best to protect your feet. I have seen students try to chop wood with sandals on. I've seen them clearing brush with bare feet. Don't do that. Wear proper closed toed shoes for those kinds of situations. Again, work smart, not hard, and avoid injury whenever possible. Yes, it's great to ground your feet to the land, and yes, it's great to have your feet, your toes stretching out and getting some air and drying off from being in sweaty boots. That's when you're relaxing. That's when you're not doing labor. Do not go around barefoot when you're doing hard work with chopping tools, especially. And going on that subject of breaking wood, and breaking down material. Let's say we have a bunch of saplings we trimmed that we cut down that we're going to use for an arch shelter of some sort. It could be a wigwam. It could be a, a half dome shelter, like a super shelter. It could be uh, a wicker style shelter or a woven shelter, or even waddle and daub style uh, walls, whatever it may be. You cut all these saplings and let's say they're conifers or deciduous. doesn't really matter which one they are. And we have all these branches now attached with some of these trees. It's better to leave the branches on and some of them, it's better to remove the branches with conifers like cedar and spruce and pine. The amount of thickness in the boughs and the branches can kind of interfere with you trying to weave together your shelter as well. That might be the best material for your bedding or your roofing. So we don't want to just have that interspersed in the frame. We want to use that material. 
On the other hand, saplings that are hardwood, such as ash, maple, birch, alder, willow is a very common one across Canada and the States. You have these long whippy branches that frankly are a lot of work to trim off. And also when you trim them off with a knife or a saw or an ax, you often get these little sharp spurs. And these can become eye injury potential, but more likely it's going to damage whatever covering you put onto that frame. I love to bring a tarp, whatever kind of tarp. It could be a sill nylon tarp. It could be a Dacron tarp. It could be uh, just a poly tarp you get from the hardware store, the polyfiber woven tarps, like the big blue tarps everybody's experienced camping with. Those are great tarps and great coverings, and they are so versatile that it feels foolish for me to not take a tarp camping with me, even if I am bringing a tent, which I rarely do. I usually go hammock camping. But regardless, now you have all these sharp little spurs all over your frame that can act like little push pins to poke holes in that tarp. And when the wind comes through, they can become little saw teeth that slowly start to tear through the fabric. And so with deciduous trees, such as, again, your hardwoods, your maples, your birch, etc., I actually prefer leaving the branches on, and that can actually be for several reasons. First off, there's not going to be a bunch of sharp little spurs cutting into my tarp or poking me in the face. Secondly, it's going to be less work for me to put the frame together because I don't have to trim off all these pole, uh, trim off all these branches, so I'm saving time. But finally, they become extra ways to bind the frame together. I can use less cordage. If we're thinking about this being a survival situation, Let's say I have a hundred feet of parachute cord and I have to build myself a shelter. If I can save as much of that cord as possible by just intertwining and weaving the branches together and wrapping the branches onto themselves and doing uh, almost like reverse wraps, uh, twisting the fiber together and locking it into itself with half hitches and such, that's going to save me a lot of cord. And that's also going to save me a lot of knots. (laughs) This is, this can save me a lot of time and it's going to become a lot more structurally sound. In fact, the longer the poles are, I can actually weave the rafters together of my shelter and let the ground kind of pin uh, against when the stick tries to unwind from the other stick, it gets pinned by being so long and tall and being dragging on the ground. It kind of gets pinned to the dirt and therefore it's not going to come undone. I've made probably probably hundreds of shelters now where I used maybe 10 feet of cord on the entire structure and just use the length of the branches and the crown of that tree to do most of the work of binding it together. And it becomes like this very crudely woven basket that is very, very stable. And I mean, really stable. We've had, uh, we've got photos on our social media, on our, on Instagram and Facebook of shelters we've built where, the entire structure was held together by its branches. And there's like two feet of snow on that roof, two feet. That's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight. And in certain areas you can get more than two feet on top of one of those shelters and they'll still hold their weight and there's no knots holding it together. So again, this is that work smart, not hard kind of concept of saving materials, saving resources, saving time and energy being by by being smart and clever with how you do things. On the note of knots though, there's, (laughs) there's a few different opinions. Um, there's the, there's that adage of, if you don't know any good knots, tie a lot of knots. Okay, sure. 
or I can learn five to 10 really, really good knots and hitches. And for me, like my top five are the Canada jam, knot, the clove hitch and its family. So like the constrictor knot and all those, uh, and then the taut line hitch, which is a, uh, tightening locking tar, uh, tarp tightening guy line kind of knot or hitch, uh, as well as the trucker hitch, or at least a modified version of the trucker's hitch. And finally the Prussic, which is related to the lark spur, I believe it's called, uh, where you wrap or maybe lark head. I think it's the lark spur, uh, where you wrap the cord multiple times around the other cord and those multiple wraps become like multiple fingers holding onto the rope. So it doesn't slip and slide around on you. Very similar to how the adjustable or taut line hitch works, but for different aspects. And when combining those five knots, I can build a very, very sound camp that doesn't have a lot of wasted cord. And that's really important because again, wasting cord means I'm going to have less cord for when I need to do other things such as make emergency snowshoes, bind an ax handle back together for an emergency until I can get back to town and get it or until I have time to make a new handle, I can bind with a constrictor knot or a jam knot. Uh, a cracked handle to help hold it together until I have time to repair it. And if I don't have any cord left, cause I spent it all building my shelter, that's not really good. So learning good knots and hitches, but also another way to save time is bringing other options for your tarp rigs. A lot of us tarp camp, we use tarps for uh, overhead cover from rain, even for around the fire or at our food prep area or our actual shelter itself. And I remember being very young, going on a bunch of different courses and I was learning all these fancy knots. And then I went on a camping trip with a guy who had, uh, seven bungee cords and then like maybe 20 feet of parachute cord. And I was like, that's cheating. And then I saw him put his shelter together in like three minutes flat. And when he had to adjust, he just pulled on the elastic bungee cords and adjusted them up and down the trees until they're at the right height and the right pitch to help shed the rain or stop the wind or whatever he needed for that shelter. Okay. So bringing bungee cords, if we think about it, there, there might be a little bit of added weight for the, the hooks or the, the clips that are on the ends of them compared to bringing more rope. But how much time do I want to waste setting up camp, especially if you're getting into camp in the dark or bad weather's coming and you need it set up now or you want to have to be, you, you want to be able to get things put together and take down quickly because you're on the move frequently. Bungee cords can save a lot of time. And again, it's, it's not that much extra weight when I've, when I've weighed out like the five or six bungee cords that I take with me compared to like the rolls of cord, I see a lot of other people take with them. It, it's almost equivalent. And therefore I can save my good, like bank line, parachute cord, uh, mule tape, whatever other rope or cordage I'm bringing with me for other tasks where it's better suited again, right tool for the right job. And so this is just one way to look at it if, of work smart, not hard, or more, you know, the less you carry. Yes, I can carry a little bit extra stuff to make my life easier, which saves me time and saves me effort. And that's really where I like to add weight. If I'm going to add weight to my kit, it has to be for really valid reasons that are going to really benefit me. There should be as little detriment as possible other than weight itself. My kit 
on average weighs about 23 to 28 pounds, depending on how much food I'm taking with me and how much clothing I'm taking with me for longer trips or for cooler weather and all that kind of stuff. When I'm winter camping, my kit's about 50 pounds, but it's on a toboggan or a sled. So I don't have to worry about that. But when I'm camping in the summer and in the shoulder seasons, the, the, the uh, camping on the edge, like we talked about on that episode of camping on the edge in the spring and the fall, I can take a little bit less gear and then save that weight for things that are actually important to me. Right. Does that make sense to everybody? I hope that's making sense to you. Let's dive on to the next part of this. On the subject of right gear or right tools for the right job, I'm going to crack open a carbonated water. Don't mind that noise. I'm very thirsty. It's very hot out today. Very, very hot out today. And even down here in the podcast dungeon, it is very, very warm. On the subject of right tools for the right job, how can we use our tools the best way possible? And how can we exert the least effort as possible? I remember on many occasions watching people use a knife to baton through a piece of wood. And I'm not going to say don't do that. I do it all the time. I use, in fact, I push it through with my hands sometimes, depending on the type of wood it is. But let's talk about using our knife to split logs for firewood material or for uh, making a bow drill kit in the woods. And all we have is that knife. We don't have an axe. We don't have a saw. We just have that knife. And let's say it's a the average what people refer to as a bushcraft knife, which is a term I can't stand, but a bush knife. Uh, four and a half inch blade, maybe five inch blade, maybe three and a quarter, uh, three and three quarter inch blade, whatever it may be. Your classic like more a companion or clipper style knife, or uh, maybe it's even the more Eldris, even smaller. And that's the knife you've got. Okay, I'm now going to baton through a six inch diameter piece of wood. Clearly that is thicker than the knife is long. And that's what I've seen a lot of people do. And even smaller diameter wood, where you get like maybe the tip of the knife poking out to strike with your baton. So you've sunk your knife in and now what? Now what? You're going to exert yourself and exert yourself and exert that knife. And on several occasions, including what have happened to me in the past, the knife breaks and we blame the knife. Stupid piece of crap. We blame the knife. We're the ones that did it. The knife, the knife didn't decide to go into this dense piece of material and exert itself. You decided to do that. So what can we do that's better? think about that for a moment. While you're thinking about that, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story of a, of a show I saw, or at least a video I saw from Woods Canada, which is a company based here in Canada that's camping gear. Uh, A few years back, they were really going downhill in quality and product options and stuff. And then about, I don't know, six, seven years back, they just started to jump in quality and product options. And they really started to get their, their, their ass in gear when it came down to, to products and promoting their company and everything. And I'm not here as an endorse. I'm not, this is not a paid sponsorship or anything like that. This is not an endorse. This is not a, an endorsement for Woods Canada. They've got a lot of cool stuff. Not all of it's great. So don't worry. I'm not trying to just sell you on Woods Canada, but they had a video series called the greatest explorer. And on this one video they did was a bunch of folks trying to split wood with just a knife when that's the only tool they had with them. And during this, at least one, if not two of them broke their knife. 
during this little challenge. And then came in my, one of my favorite people in all of Canada, Andre Francois Borbeau or Borbeau. Andre Francois, I apologize if I stumble on your name there, brother. He is the godfather of Canadian survival skills and Canadian survival mentality. And really, in many ways, the godfather of work smart, not hard. And during this video, he came out and carved a couple of wedges out of wood with his knife. Drove those into the exact same wood that the other folks are driving their knives into and split the log in half. His knife was fine and he wasn't exerting himself. Think about how thick your knife is. Most, let's say the, let's, let's say we're going with like the average thickness of knife. That could be anywhere from three thirty seconds of an inch to, well, at the most extreme that I'm aware of in most knives, quarter inch. So it's more like a fro at best. It's going to split straight grained, thin pieces of wood really well. It's not a wedge. It, it, it is like, that's how the knife works. It's going by the concept of shear through physics. You're shearing molecules apart or shearing atoms in some sense apart through a wedging effect. So yes, it is a wedge, but it's not a big wedge. We're not talking like half inch to two inch thick wedges. So how in the hell do we think that our knife is going to do what a wedge can do? What a proper wedge can do. And the beautiful thing of having that knife out there is you can make a lot of wedges. I've done it where I had just a knife. We did a, we did a one knife challenge many years ago. I think this is like eight, nine years back. And we had to split logs that were mm, eight inch diameter. Like they weren't huge. They were not talking like red, redwoods out West. We're talking like mm, eight inch hardwood. So I think it was, uh, I believe it was ash, white ash, which is a fairly straight grained wood. There will be a few knots here and there. And there were, and we had the challenge of, you just have a knife and some guys, uh, some folks on that challenge made like two or three wedges and they started splitting and they started splitting and they started splitting. They'd have to, you, for those of you who've never wedged wood apart, the idea is you get the one wedge in that starts to split. Then you put another wedge into that split and you drive that wedge in deeper with a heavy log or a mallet of some sort, uh, or the back of your ax, if you have an ax. And then that makes a longer split. And then you put another wedge into that split. And by the time you get to the third wedge, usually people have the first wedge they put in getting loose. And so they pop that out and they drive that in. It becomes like this leapfrog effect of one, two, three, number one pops out, put number one in again. Now it's number one again, and then one, two, three, and it continues on down the log. And they were making, you know, two to three finger, finger thick wide and about uh, an inch thick wedges on these eight inch diameter ash logs. And they spent about, I'd say 15, 20 minutes pounding these again and again and again and again and running back and forth and getting them into the right positions and all that stuff. And I sat there for the first mm, six minutes and just carved wedge after wedge after wedge. I made 10 wedges. And I went one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And on the 10th one, the entire log split in half. There's that 
ma- there's that uh, quote from Abraham Lincoln, who I is not a I'm not a, I'm not a fan favorite of Abraham Lincoln, but I've always enjoyed the quote where he was asked if he had three hours to, or he once said if I had three hours to cut down a tree, I'd spent the first I would spend the first two hours sharpening the axe. It's a little over the top. I don't think it takes two hours unless that axe is really mangled. I don't think you need to take two hours to sharpen it. You're going to take off a lot of good steel that could have been left on there. But the concept of making good preparations to shorten the amount of effort you got to do later is always something that I appreciate. It's always something I appreciate. So making sure your knife is sharp, making sure your axe is sharp, learn to sharpen your saws, people. Not all of them can be sharpened, but if you're using a Swede tooth or a Swede style cutting cross cut blade, like what you see on buck saws, you can sharpen those. Learn to sharpen it. Some people even have multi-tools on them that have files on them that are small enough to sharpen a saw like that. Do that. So beyond that, beyond the concept of just the tools, we got to get into our concepts of like how we do things. So I was talking about breaking branches earlier instead of cutting branches and all that stuff. Removing branches is what we really talked on, but we didn't really talk about um, removing the branches. I am not a fan of cutting branches in general. First and foremost is off again, going to leave very jagged edges and spurs. You're going to have to remove anyways. Secondly, it's actually kind of dangerous especially when people start like flick cutting with their knife uh, or with their axe even. Um, Back in 2018, yeah, it was 2018, we were building a wigwam for Curve Lake First Nation. Uh, We were contracted and I brought in a bunch of volunteers to help me gather materials. Um, And one of them was a good friend of mine. And I'm not going to name him (laughs) because I don't want to embarrass him on, you know, international podcast. Uh, and they were cutting down cedars, stripping the bark and removing the branches. Cause we needed to have these cedar poles and they were only like mm, two inch thick, maybe two and quarter inch thick, uh, saplings. And so there's all these whippy branches that need to be removed and we don't want the branches cause for the, these are going to be used for the external frame of the lodge that helps contain all the bark and keep it nice and flat and supported on the frame of the lodge. So we don't want to have a bunch of bark on there. We don't have a, don't want to have a bunch of branches on there that can scratch into the bark or even punch holes in it. And so we need to remove the branches. And I was out cutting other trees down for bark. I was cutting, you know, like 10 to 12 inch, 13 inch diameter cedars, sometimes two foot diameter cedars, um, to get the bark off them, to make shingles for the roof of the lodge, for the, for the, for the covering of the lodge. And that is another part of work smart, not hard. I could go and peel a bunch of basswood and hickory trees that have like inch thick bark that weighs a ton, or I can cut down and they take a bunch of work to find all of them because they're spread out. Or I can go into a cedar bush that has a bunch of big cedars in one area and shuck the bark off them really rapidly. And the bark weighs a fraction of the weight. And I can carry all that bark out and stack that bark in a, in a smaller footprint of height footprint of height. Wow. Vertically, there's a lot less, so I can load it all into a truck a lot easier, but still have the same footprint of diameter or size of bark sheets. Uh, while I was working on getting the bark, this friend and a few other friends were cutting the poles for me. And as I came back, I saw him uh, using a Mora knife of his, and it's a Mora knife. It's an M-O-R-A Mora knife, Mora of Sweden. I think it was a KJ Erickson, like one of the older from the nineties uh, knives 
blue plastic handle. It's a really good knife. Most people have one. And Mora knives are kind of infamous for not having a 90 degree spine on them, not having a sharp 90 degree spine. People have to file them sharp to be able to do all the things you need in bushcraft because apparently you need a 90 degree. Your knife must have a sharp 90 degree spine to be considered a bush knife or bushcraft knife. I disagree wholeheartedly on that, but that's neither here nor there. All I can say is his knife did not have a 90 degree spine on it. And he's whip cutting all these sapling uh, branches off, all these cedar branches off. And it had been raining. We'd had a thunderstorm about 20 minutes prior and it had been raining and everything's wet, everything's damp. And I said, Hey, how about we don't use our knives? And he goes, well, I don't want to, uh, I was like, just put some gloves on and pull the branches off. Cause if you're looking at a cedar or a pine and even a lot of hardwoods, if you pull the branches in the opposite direction of their growing, and they're usually growing upwards. Branches usually are trying to move up towards the sun. Uh, if you pull them towards their root uh, side or the, the stump end of the pole, the branches break off pretty rapidly. And the biggest concern there is like blistering or kind of almost like a rope burn or getting a splinter. So wear a pair of gloves, not a big deal. And he said, oh, my gloves are back with all the other gear. I don't really want to do that. I said, well, I'd rather you do that than use the knife. And he did two more cuts and the knife ricocheted off of a branch and the spine of the knife got him in the knuckle. Again, this was an unsharpened spine. It was not at a 90 degree edge. It had like the, the classic kind of rolled bird spine of a Mora knife. And it cut him to the tendon on his right, on his left knuckle on his left hand. I believe it was his middle finger could have been his, his index finger, but I think it was his middle finger and we could see the tendon and part of it was poking out. Like it had been semi severed, not good, not good at all. And so then we had to walk ironically back to where his gloves were to apply first aid and get him to a hospital because he had damaged his hand badly. And he was laid off work for a week because of it. And it injured him badly. Whereas if you just wore your gloves and yank the branches off and I've done it without gloves, the first branch you break off, you then use that to pad your knuckles or the inside of your fingers to grasp the next branch and yank it off and then switch it around and go to the next branch and pull it off. And it's a very fast way to do things and doesn't require any tools. And it's also going to keep your knife sharper for longer. So again, if we're in a survival situation and we have to remove all these branches for bedding, uh, to make our frame, to, uh, make our roofing, whatever it may be, I don't want to snip off every single branch, potentially dulling my knife. But then you look at like certain trees, like hemlock trees, another conifer tree, they actually have silica where their branch meets the trunk. Silica is what chalcedony and quartz and flint, these very hard, like harder than steel stones are made out of is silica. That's one of the reasons it's so hard. Those stones are so hard because they have silica in them. So now I'm chopping with my knife in a survival situation into a hemlock sapling to cut off all of its branches. And I could potentially be chipping my knife. Now I have a sawtooth which is not going to be, it's going to be a ragged cutting tool for the rest of the survival scenario that I'm in. And I'm not going to be able to get things done as easily. Again, work smart, not hard. Break the branches off. Don't have to worry about that. Break them with your hands. Break them with your hands. Wear a pair of gloves to pad your hands. 
or learn proper technique of using the former branches to pad your hand to break the next branch. And this can keep on going. Like the idea of work smart, not hard can just keep on growing. I, I again, want to touch on the idea that we can always like, if you have stuff that is longer than it needs to be, can you break it? Can you burn it? Or does it need to be? I've made many shelters with very long poles and logs that were much bigger than the actual shelter needed to be, but I didn't want to exert energy removing those parts because it wasn't going to benefit me to remove them. I just let them hang outside of the shelter away from anything that's going to get in the way. They were not detrimental to to, to keep on there. Therefore, I left them on. Again, work smart, not hard. When it comes down to, again, going back to weight in our packs and weight in our gear, Ryan brought a great subject up or a great option up where the idea of breaking up your kit between teammates. Okay, you're going to carry all the food, but we're going to carry all the water and you're going to carry all the the tent parts, but I'm going to carry the tent stove and you're going to carry the axes, but I'm going to carry all of the sleeping gear. And that way you can kind of break up kit and weight and disperse it between teammates. So it's more fairly balanced and everybody's carrying less in the, in the long run. Uh, beyond that, we thinking about that concept, uh, talking about like breaking up kit and, and carrying less that you don't have to worry about exerting yourself is this idea of pacing yourself to avoid caloric exhaustion, injury, or dehydration or all of the above. When, I think about survival courses that I've been on and survival courses I have taught. One of my favorite things to watch happen is the acquiring of resources, whether it be for shelter building or fire. And one of my favorite things to watch is when a student decides they want to be, let's say on the side of a hill, a little bit up off the bottom of the hill. So they're not going to be dealing with the cold wind, uh, the cold air, but they don't want to be at the very top of the hill where they're going to be inundated with all the weather. And they want to be on that southeasterly slope of the hill where they're going to be kind of like halfway down the hill, halfway up the hill. That's great. Then they start getting their resources from the bottom of the hill and walking it up the hill and walking it up the hill and walking it up the hill. And they're bringing like hug sized logs that are like 20 feet long. And it takes like two of them or three of them to carry it. And they're doing all this work. And then, you know, I wait about an hour, hour and a half into them setting up their camps before I'll start setting up mine. And what I do is I go up the hill. (laughs) I go up the hill empty-handed and come down the hill loaded up with stuff. Gravity working with me, so I'm not going to exert too much energy. Pacing yourself and going slow and being methodical and observing how everything's being put together. And then using problem-solving techniques to get things done clean and quick. That is so much more beneficial than trying to haul everything up the hill. Um, So much more beneficial. There's a great story from Ron Hood, uh, Karen Hood's, uh, uh, the the, the founder of the Woods Master Series in Hood's Woods with his wife, Karen Hood. Uh, He passed away sadly in 2011. Not too long ago, actually. I think it was around uh, early June. Yeah. Man. That's crazy. It's been that long, 10 years. Anyways, um, Ron had this great story that he would tell on many occasions of having very similar scenarios 
where these guys that are jacked and they're big and they're strong and they're carrying all these logs up the hill and getting all their firewood up the hill and getting all their fire and they're huffing and puffing and they're panting and they're exhausted. And then this one lady breaks a tree by drop, by pushing it over from the top of the hill and letting it fall down the hill, breaking into a bunch of pieces. And that's all for firewood for the night. That turned out to be his future wife, Karen. Uh, I doubt Karen's listening to the podcast, but if you are Karen, I love you. You are such a badass. I adore you. I really, really, really hope you're doing well. Uh, you and Jesse and everything you guys get up to these days. But yeah, that was, it's a great example of what I'm getting at here. Of like, think about where you're getting your resources and where you're going to take them. If I have to build a fire and I'm only going to be there for one night do I want to build an entire fire ring in the middle of the woods and then bring in all my water from, from a creek or a lake or a, a riverbank? Or can I camp near that creek, have my fire near the creek so I can put it out very easily, but also bring water in for boiling, bring water in for drinking, bring water in for washing and all that stuff right there at the camp. Now, of course, we've got to be mindful about flooding. We have to be mindful about uh, how high does that river or that creek or that lake shore get when there's heavy torrential downpour either right there or up valley or uphill from there. Always have that stuff in mind and be mindful about where you set up camp. We've had that conversation on the uh, Gimme Shelter and the Shelter Hel uh, Helter Shelter episodes last year on the podcast. Uh, but let's keep that in mind. At the same time, I can stay fairly in Ontario for the most part pretty close to a body of water and not have to do a lot of legwork getting my drinking water and my wash water and my cooking water and my putting out the fire water. But also when we get down to putting out the fire, what if I just stop feeding the fire early in the morning or early or, or late, late, late at night on my last day camping in that spot? Instead of starting the fire back up or fueling it back up in the morning, what if I plan to bring a cold breakfast for the final day of the camping trip? And that way, when it's time to let the fire go out, it can just go out and it'll be even less effort extinguishing that fire before I leave. I've seen people where they've got practically a, a bonfire going and they're going to be leaving their campsite in like an hour and a half. And they have to spend all that time putting out the fire and half the time they don't put a lot of effort into putting out that fire because they realize they don't have a lot of time left and they got to get going. So they just dump some water on it. That'll be fine. And they leave. And it's often those fires that start a wildfire. So again, work smart, not hard. Make sure you don't have to light the fire in the morning. And so it can just go to ash and ash is a lot easier to put out than full size pieces of firewood. Pretty sure this episode is going to be under an hour because I've only got two points really left I want to bring up, but I can kind of dive into these. And these are two of my more favorite ways of thinking about working smart, not hard. As you may have heard in our previous episode, uh, when we were at our last patrons episode where we had our patrons from Patreon with us, we we're talking about how much camping can suck. And I mentioned my least favorite part of camping is washing up for uh, washing up either you or dinner and the dishes. I hate it. My, my least favorite thing in the world is dealing with greasy, dirty dishes or me with cold water. Now I can get by camping with just a little bottle of dish, uh, not dish soap, but Dr. Bronner's biodegradable soap. It can be used as a bathing soap, a shampoo, 
uh, laundry soap or dish soap. It's really, really useful. The problem with it as a dish soap or any dish soap is to cut the grease, you kind of need some warm water or hot water. And I find that really frustrating. If you bring like pots and pans and you have multiple pots, multiple pans, a cook stove, all that kind of stuff with you, you're going to have a good chance someone's going to bring a pound of bacon with them or they're going to bring steak or they're going to bring something else that has a fat and that fat is going to get cooked and rendered out of the meat and it's going to get all over the pan and you pour the extra grease into the fire or wherever you have a clean spot to dump it that's not going to attract bears or damage the ecology in some way. Uh, there's still going to be some grease in that pan. And then you're like, oh, it's going to use some like Dr. Bronner's squirt, squirt, put some cold water in there. And it's not really coming off. It becomes this white pasty film that never leaves the pan until you get home. And it's going to collect pine needles and dirt and ash and bugs. And it just gets disgusting, disgusting. And so, yeah, you can heat that water up in that pan, warm the dish up warm the pan, put some water in there, get it not to a boil, but get it hot, you know, steaming, put your two squirts of soap in there and scrub it out. But beyond that, let's talk about like, we make a dinner and you're either on your own or you have multiple friends with you and you decide to make dinner and dinner can be right over the fire or it can be on a cook stove, whatever it may be. There's this multi-pot cooking desire. It's like what we, it's like you want to be a chef when you're out there and everything has to have its own place and its own, like you're sauteing onions in this pan and you're cooking down the, the steaks in this pan and you're doing uh, a rice dish in this pot. Frankly, I'm a huge fan of one pot dishes. One pot cooking is my favorite way to cook when I'm camping because it becomes one pot that has to get cleaned. That is the number one reason. It, it saves weight, yes. It allows me to be a little bit more creative, yes. It means everything's already compiled in one dish. Therefore, it's going to be easier to metabolize because it's all in one place. I don't have to keep easier to metabolize. That's ridiculous. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's going to be easier to eat because it's all in one spot. And at the end of the day, it all looks the same in your stomach. So spreading it out and mixing and not mixing it up and having all these different dishes it just seems ridiculous to me. One pot cooking. Uh, one of my wife's favorite recipes when she goes camping is Thanksgiving in a pot where they do like instant mashed potatoes with a canned ground turkey or something like that. Uh, and instant stuffing and all that stuff. And they just basically bring it to a boil and cook it all down together. And you add your seasoning from a packet or you add your cranberry sauce from a can or from a, from a packet and you're done. It's all one meal in a pot. It's great. Chili soups, rice dishes can all just be everything mixed in together and becomes a medley. And then you have one dish to wash. That's, I have to make that as clear as possible. Why that is like, it is so important to me. And I think it should be more important to other people to have just one dish to wash up that night, especially at the end of a long canoe trip, especially at the end of a long day of hiking or a long day of hunting or whatever you're doing out there that's going to be all that energy you're putting into and you come home or come back to camp and it's late, you're tired, you're exhausted. Now I have to do a bunch of dishes. No one ever does that. And so they leave them by the fire. 
I remember eight, nine years ago, I did that once. I had like half a pot of chili left. It was a small pot. It wasn't like a big cooked pot. Like I brought a Dutch oven with me, just a small um, 1.7 liter billy can. And there was like two cups of chili left in it. I just couldn't eat it. Portion your food. If you're hungry, make more, but don't make giant pots of food when you're camping and expect everybody to eat it because they never do. They never do. I've done giant meals for like 12 students and two staff and then end up with half a pot of food still. And everybody has that same idea of, oh, I'm just going to leave it by the fire. I'll hang it up off of a branch or something or I'll, I'll, I'll hang it. You're still attracting bears in. You're still attracting mice in. You're still attracting bugs in. And on that occasion with the chili, I attracted a raccoon into my camp. And it stole my damn cook pot. I have a lot of animosity towards raccoons in general, but that was like the cherry on top. Was It stole my favorite cook pot. It took me four months to find that cook pot out in the woods where it ate and cleaned it out of chili and abandoned the pot behind. I was livid. I was livid. And I was mad at myself, not the raccoon. I was mad at myself because I could have just made one uh, serving or one and a half servings. No, I had to make three servings of chili for myself that night. Cause I was like, I'm going to need, I'm going to eat it all. I worked really hard today. And then I left like two cups of it behind in the pot, hung it up near the fire, figuring that would be enough. And then a raccoon came into my camp, stole my favorite cook pot, ate all the rest of the chili, made a bunch of noise and racket and scared all the students out of their beds. And I felt like an idiot. I felt like an absolute idiot. Like this is the guy these people are paying to take them in the woods. The guy that gets his favorite cook pot stolen. The only cook pot he brought with him. So again, being smart, make like one serving packets of your food when you take it out with you. And if you're really that hungry, once you finish eating the first packet, make another packet. You don't have to throw it all in at once and eat it all at once because you're probably not going to eat it all portion your meals, not rat. Well, I guess you could call it a ration, but like portion your meals out. And that way you can make the decision of I'm still hungry. I still feel like I can eat another entire portion. I will cook another portion. The final thing I really want to hit home on is multiple methods and techniques, uh, techniques for problem solving. And what I mean by this is there's people who will be like, I'm going to bring a ferro rod on my camping trip, or they're going to be like, I don't need a ferro rod or a bow drill or a flint and steel kit. I've got a lighter and the lighter gets wet. And you sit there and you sit there and you sit there trying to dry that lighter out. And there's a lot of ways you can dry that lighter out. You can also prevent it from getting wet in the first place by keeping it in a waterproof case. But I digress. Let whatever it may be, whether it be shelter building and we know only one style of shelter and it's just not going to work in this scenario because of weather, because of material available, whatever it may be, the more you know, the less you carry. So the less you have to depend on modern amenities. When it comes down to fire lighting, I carry multiple methods of fire lighting on me at any given time. And yes, 99% of the time I light my damn fire with a lighter, whether it's Zippo or the classic Bic or what have you. But I'm also going to carry ferro rods. I'm going to carry a waterproof case of matches. I'm going to carry 
uh, <laughs> in some cases, like the Stormproof matches are my favorites. Like the ones made by UCO and REI and all those brands. They're like miniature road flares. I'm going to carry multiple lighters in multiple places on my person and in my gear. So I'm going to have like a lighter in my shirt pocket, a lighter in my pants pocket, a lighter in my first aid kit, a lighter in my survival kit, a lighter in my uh, binocular pack that I carry with me when I'm hunting. I've got a lighter in there as well. And then I'm going to also have a ferro rod with my knife, a ferro rod maybe hanging around my neck, a ferro rod in my survival kit, a ferro rod in my binocular pack when I'm hunting. I even have one friend who took the uh, butt cap, the butt plate, the, the stock plate off of his rifle drilled holes inside there's often there's already hollows in the stock depending on what kind of firearm you have and he made these holes and added kit into there uh there was a mylar emergency blanket he had two ferro rods and a lighter uh that were put into a vacuum the lighter was kept in a vacuum sealed bag so it stays waterproof and weatherproof uh and then he put all those things into the stock of his firearm and all he had to do was make sure he had his multi-tool on his belt so that if he ever needed things he could just unscrew the two little screws holding the butt plate of his firearm on the stock remove the butt plate pull those items out and he had them instead of having to worry about calving them in his pockets and having them in his shirt and having them in his backpack and carrying more gear there's so many ways of problem solving and the more you learn these things and the more techniques you learn and you need to practice these things in multiple conditions you got to be tired you need to try it when you're hungry you need to try it try it when it's dark or low lighting situations you need to do it when you haven't slept in a while you have to do it when it's raining out when it's snowing out when it's windy try lighting a lighter in the wind in real wind conditions try lighting a lighter can you do it can you figure out techniques to do it successfully can you shield it in the right ways in when you're fully out in the open like in the middle of a field and you've got to get a fire lit and the wind is coming and it's howling through it's ripping through like a torrent can you get that lighter to work if not, problem solve, problem solve, problem solve. How many ways can we carry fire techniques? Uh, Moore's once was said, uh, once was quoted as saying, the best survival expert is a crash room or emergency room medic or surgeon who can light fire in a dozen or more ways because they're going to know everything the human body is going to be going through in stresses. They're going to know all the safety concerns. They're going to know all that stuff plus know how to make fire in multiple ways. That's really the best person to learn survival skills from. In his opinion, that's like one of the better ways to learn it. Not all of us are crash room surgeons. So let's learn as many ways possible of making shelter, how many knots we can use in different ways, different materials to make cordage from and learning how to improvise. Um, one of the things that I, I think I've mentioned when we did knowledge first about a year back, uh, I think I mentioned that when I was in high school, one of my mentors, Gino Ferry, recommended that I take improv acting classes. And I never understood why. I thought he just liked whose line is it anyway. But he recommended to my parents and he recommended to me that I take improv acting classes. And I can tell you right now, I thought that that was the most bizarre thing I ever heard. And then I took the classes and I started noticing that I could answer things on the fly a lot faster and I could come to solutions quicker because my brain is learning to not say no. My mind and my brain was learning to say yes. Okay. Yes, I can do this. How do I do it? And I could start to learn 
ways around and problem solve and troubleshoot situations. It's also why I started becoming a very smart, uh, like a very quick on the fly, smart ass to people. <laughs> Before then, I was that guy that like people would tease and I would sit there for like two minutes and be like, uh, yeah, well, you're stupid. I, I didn't have any quick comebacks. And then I started learning improv acting in high school and I became very quick, very quick, both in sarcasm, but also in solutions and getting things figured out. And so that was one way to rewire my brain to problem solve. And he had, he has this motto. Gino has this kind of motto that he would say is if you want to become a better basketball player, learn piano, because you're going to become much more creative with your fingers and you're going to become much more in tune with hand-eye coordination learning the piano and that's gonna make you a better basketball player even though they don't seem to be connected whatsoever and so improv acting for me as a survival enthusiast and a bushcraft enthusiast became my piano lessons and it became a way for me to think outside the box and that's allowed me to do very creative things that other people would be like oh shit, i never thought of that because i was thinking outside the box I have, we've been in situations where we needed a, we needed a bobber for a fishing line because it was just the, the, the water depth was not we, the, where the fish were, was not the bottom of the water. And every time we threw our lure in, it would just drop right down with our bait right to the bottom. The fish wouldn't follow. So I needed to be a little higher. So, so I literally walked over to a goldenrod, cut off a goldenrod gall, stuck my fishing line through the gall, tied off, tied it off on that spot, exactly at the height it needed to be and tossed it as a bobber. And the people I was with went, I have worked in the woods for my entire life and I never saw someone do that. And I can, I can really only, I never saw that in a manual. I never saw that in a survival manual or a book of any kind. I never saw that in like a Wildwood, uh, Wilderness Ways magazine or Backwoodsman. I never saw that before. I just thought, what looks like a bobber? What can act like a bobber? There's a bunch of goldenrod right here. There's galls on them. I'll use that. And I can only attribute that to improv acting. And I can tell you right now, I don't do hoedowns before you even ask. I don't do hoedowns. I don't like to sing. I don't like, I, that's the one part I'm not creative with is singing on the fly. I can't improvise singing, but I can figure things out very quickly for myself and problem solve and troubleshoot very quickly on the fly. And the only thing I can really attribute to that to is because Gino said you should take improv acting classes. So out of everything he's taught me over the years, that was the one thing that he really helped me with. Was, and he didn't even teach me it. He just recommended it. And my parents signed me up. I did a, uh, did a bunch of classes and I became better for it. So learning multiple ways of doing things, learn as many things as you can learn thermodynamics. Thermodynamics will help you with fire lighting and shelter building and shelter construction in general. Learn, oh man, like water disinfection purification methods. Also, uh, just a, an addition, we actually had a, a podcast last year, podcast episode called Wild Water. And I talked about pathogens and I talked frankly about like, I don't trust tap water. And I brought up Walkerton, uh, the Walkerton water crisis as part of the reasoning. Um, I haven't listened to the podcast since we put it out, so don't quote me on it. Um, I'm looking for, it's, uh, Matt O'Rourke, uh, messaged us and he sent me this really, really good message <clears throat> and I agree with him. 
And I want to say that very clearly, I agree with him. So what he said was, uh, he sent this to our Instagram account uh, on Tuesday of this past week. Hey man, I just found your podcast and I've really enjo- and I'm really enjoying your content. I just listened to your early podcast about water, episode seven, I think. As a person in the water treatment industry, it was really good info for the public. However, since Walker and the tap water in Ontario is heavily monitored, and I and I think saying to be wary of tap water makes people think they should buy bottled water. Bottled water companies are not as heavily regulated as municipal water treatment. I agree with him on that. That is a hundred percent true. And I don't think I said what I was, tr- I don't think I said what I was trying to imply. And sadly it can get misinterpreted. Matt is correct. And he read that or heard that episode and felt that he needed to correct me on that. And I want to thank you, Matt, for that. Um, what I was trying to get at in that episode is because of what I got happened to me in Norwood, Colorado, uh, back in 2014, I personally suspect all water that I come across all water. Bottled water is in some places safer than the tap water. Not in most developed countries though. We're talking places like South America, Latin America areas, many parts of Asia, many parts of Africa. However, he is correct. Bottled water is not as heavily regulated as municipal water in Canada and most developed countries. And because of that, I could have easily caused people to be misconstrued on the facts. And I want to correct myself on that. Bottled water, I do not support for the most part. The bottle, the water I'm currently drinking is canned water because we reuse, recycle, and re, uh, and again, reuse 94% of the aluminum that we've ever used. The cans that we have full of bubbly waters of whatever variety is not drinking bubbly water itself, but whatever brand of bubbly carbonated waters or pop, whatever it is, it's in aluminum is reusable and recyclable. And it's got a very high success rate of recycling plastic bottles, which are petroleum byproduct are not as heavily recycled. And they have a, they have a lifespan of how many times they can be remade into a bottle. And through that process, you're going to lose parts of that plastic to the environment. And so not just on the idea of municipal water being more regulated than bottled water, which often is not as heavily regulated, he is correct on that, but also ethically and environmentally, it's not as safe for the environment. It's not as healthy for the environment to drink everything from bottled water. When I say treat tap water as suspect as wild water, I'm talking mostly when you're in regions that are not as heavily regulated or in regions that do not have as much support here in Canada, over a hundred first nations communities have boil water advisories or have to import water because it's unsafe. That's in Canada. That is in Canada, not just in Mexico, not just in Costa Rica, not just in places that you would consider being, uh, lesser developed than Canada. This is still happening in Canada as well. And he is correct from municipalities like the city of Peterborough, the city of Toronto, the city of the town of Walkerton has some of the safest drinking water in the world now because of regulations that came in. He is correct on that. And I will support him and stand with him on that. When I say treat tap water suspect, it's because of experiences I've had and experiences my friends and colleagues have had and treating it suspect, just a wild water means treat it yourself. If you are at a hotel in a developing nation 
or I don't like using third world and I don't even like using the term develop, but like lesser, lesser privileged nations, I think is the best way, best way I can describe it. Bester. I'm trying to say better and best at the same time is the best way for me to say it. Lesser privileged nations or in places that have less municipal support and have less financial support on their infrastructure, treat the water like wild water. And what I mean by that is don't buy bottled water and bring in bottled water. That means treat the water, bring water purification te uh, tech technology with you, bring water disinfection technology with you, treat your water, take care of your water. Okay. You are the one that's responsible for what goes into your body you are responsible. There's certain situations where you can't be responsible because you were not aware for what comes into you. If you walk through an area and the area has been exposed to radiation and you were not informed of that, it's not your fault. But when it comes down to consuming things like food or water, you have to be the one responsible to make sure that what you're consuming is safe. Uh, because you don't always have access to people that can confirm for you that the water is safe or the food is safe. So where there's regulations and where you know that there's development and there's people who have infrastructure for water treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Trust the water, follow their, pro follow their policies, follow what they tell you. But if you are in an area that you don't know, that is where water purification and disinfection treatment and water treatment, portable water treatment to make potable water is invaluable. It is, it's beyond valuable. It is invaluable. You need to have those things. So that's what I wanted to say originally. I want to thank Matt for helping me correct myself. And Matt is a much bigger authority than I am on this because he works in the water treatment industry. I don't. So thank you, Matt, for that. Hopefully you get to hear this podcast and hear me correct myself and give you a heads up for that or not a heads up, but a, what's the word? A shout out for that. So anyways, podcast is pretty much done. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I want to thank our patrons, people like Nathaniel, Sarah, Renee, uh, Paul, all these amazing folks, Martin, Otis, all these cool people have, um, Melinda, all these amazing people who keep the lights on here. You are currently helping us build our food forest for Canadian bushcraft and help build our quarter acre homestead. Um, you're also helping us support other people and other communities who are needing better water and needing better things such as Kasechuan First Nation and other communities that we will be continuing to donate every month, a portion and a of our proceeds from Patreon will be going towards causes that we find important in our, in our world. So I want to thank every person that helps subscribe, uh, through Patreon and helps support us through Patreon. Uh, and as well, if you want to become a supporter, go to patreon.com slash Canadian bushcraft, and you can jump on there from $1 up to, I don't even know how high the tiers are now. And we're going to be jump starting a lot of the tiers with, Skype call-ins, one-on-one classes, all that kind of really cool stuff for all you great folks on Patreon. So check your messages on Patreon and you'll be hearing from us very soon. You're also getting free articles, not free, but you're getting articles that are only, that are exclusive to just Patreon. You're not going to find those articles on our websites, our social media of any kind. You find those articles only on Patreon and we're going to be doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one classes that are not recorded. They don't go anywhere. They don't go on the podcast. They don't go on our YouTube channel. They don't go on our social media. They'll be strictly on our Patreon for our patrons. So you can jump in on those classes as well, depending on what tier you're at. And beyond that, I want to thank all of you for tuning in, regardless of whether you're a patron or not. Thank you for listening in. You help motivate me to keep making these awesome episodes. And I want to thank, of course, 
my co-host who sadly couldn't be here with me because I was in a rush to get this episode out and we couldn't schedule some time, but a big shout out to Ride the Adventure Guy and Nikki Satira. Thank you guys. Miss you guys. We're going to be bringing you back for some future episodes really soon. Talk to you all later. Take care. Wash your hands. Be kind to each other. Tread softly, folks.